Many years ago, Riley Knight completed a degree in history. This proved to be a bad move, as it was absolutely useless for him. Until now, here's some half-assed history. What's going on, mate? Great to have you along for some more half-assed history. This week on the agenda, going to be having a chat about, well, going to be continuing our chat, rather, about the seven wonders of the ancient world. Last week, of course, we covered off the Great Pyramid of Giza, uh, built in 2560 BCE or so. Uh, still there today, of course, everyone's heard of that one. We also got across the Hanging Gardens of Babylon, not built around 600 BCE, probably didn't exist, still a bloody, you know, very bloody interesting story. And uh, finally, we talked about the Temple of Artemis, great big, uh, you know, beautiful, great big temple built around 550 uh, BCE, burnt down, built again, eventually fell into ruin. And today we're going to cover the other four. We're going to talk about the Statue of Zeus, uh, the Mausoleum at Halicarnassus. We've already obviously talked about that in the show before. Uh, the Colossus of Rhodes and the Lighthouse of Alexandria. Now, you know, again, maybe go and have a listen to last week's episode if you haven't already. As, as I always say in situations like these when I do a two-parter, why would you ever start a podcast for the first time with an episode entitled Part 2? Honestly, mate, what is going on with you? I mean, just go and pause this, like, actual right now and go... Actually, no, hang on, not, not right now, because as I mentioned last week, it's probably worth going having listened to episode 77 at some point as well, uh, as that's where we got across the mausoleum at Halicarnassus in proper depth as well. So I'll pause, I'll wait, I'll wait, and you can... I'll go and listen to them, and you know, I'll be back here ready when you uh, when you want to, uh, uh, you know, crack on with these ones. Um we will go over actually if you don't want to if you don't want to do episode seventy seven at the moment we will go over the mausoleum very quickly so but if you want the full and truly amazing story of the mausoleum and the people involved with it go and over listen to episode seventy seven no worries anyway um, we are working our way through these wonders chronologically by date of construction or supposed construction um, and again using the aggregate list that sort of emerged over the centuries to remind you there was never a definitive list in the ancient world or, or more specifically the ancient Greek world um, uh, that's where the you know the idea of the seven wonders emerged from it is a very sort of Hellenistic uh, focused list of, of wonders and there have been many other wonders that people many other lists of you know wonders of the natural world wonders of the modern world wonders of the industrial world all, all sorts of stuff as well but the seven wonders of the ancient world you know it just ended up being kind of greatest hits album of all the wonders that that ancient greek writers were were gaga for so uh, that's what we're going to finish off today let's get to it have a chat about the remaining four um and and see what was going on with all of them so off we go we're going all the way back all the way back to uh 435 bce here remember once again seeing as we're before the common era we're counting years down not up so 435 bc was followed by 434 bc and so on and so forth until you reach zero and then it counts up and see everyone knows that um and in, back in 435 BCE, this was in the statue of Zeus at Olympia was constructed. Now, obviously, you've heard of Zeus, uh, the king of the ancient Greek gods, god of the sky and the thunder, rooted more or less anything that moved, very famous for that. Um, at, in university, I remember when I did uh, classics, I did some ancient history, and uh, one of the lecturers was uh, very, very particular in pronouncing the name Zeus. So that's always kind of stuck, and I, I don't go Zeus, but I sort of meet in the middle there with like Zeus. Uh, but yeah, it was always pretty funny hearing him call him call, call him Zeus. Anyway, um, so there is this statue of Zeus at Olympia, right? But I wonder, how much do you know about Olympia, which is an actual real place in Greece that is still around today? I mean, I learned a lot about this place while researching the episode. I don't know half of this, right? Because when you hear the name Olympia, I mean, I bet, you know, what's the first thing you think of? Maybe you think about Mount Olympus, um, the mythical seat of the 12 Olympians, the major Greek gods, but Olympia is nowhere near near Mount Olympus. Mount Olympus is also a real place near uh, near Thessaloniki, although the gods seem to have packed their bags and moved away. No one's been able to find them there. 
Um, but maybe when you hear Olympia, maybe you think of the Olympic Games. And if you do, it's with very good reason, because Olympia was, of course, the site of the ancient Olympic Games. Olympia which is found on the western side of the Peloponnese, it held an ancient sanctuary that was filled with temples and statues and olive trees, all sorts of buildings and stuff. Um, And, of course, a big stadium in which the games were held. And originally, Olympus would hold a festival in honour of Zeus, uh, but eventually, uh, you know, this festival, uh, it, it grew to include athletic competitions and so... With this, the ancient Olympic Games emerged. Now, they involved uh, um, uh, stuff like running races, chuck and javelins about, a bit of wrestling, no worries. And Greeks would travel for miles around to take part, all, all you know, through all, all different parts of the Greek world, under an Olympic truce if there was a war going on, so people could get there safely. It was pretty sweet. However, rather than having you know, a nice bloody, bloody chunk of gold hung around your neck if you won like you would these days, winners would actually take home an olive leaf wreath, which, um, which I think I've said on the, before on the podcast is a, is a bit of a bloody letdown, to be honest. But much like the Olympic today, the ancient games uh, weren't just about sports, as, mu- you know, as much as that was the focus. It was also, uh, you know, filled, they were also filled with politics. Uh, the various city, city-states city used the game as an opportunity to display their dominance or announce alliances, other political arrangements, that sort of thing. And even today, the, the Olympic flame that is used at all the modern games, of course, very famous, uh, it's lit with a mirror in Olympia itself and then transported to the place hosting the games that time around, which I think is, is it's pretty bloody cool, to be honest. Anyway... With Olympia being the seat of the ancient Olympic Games and obviously enjoying all of the wealth and the prestige that came with the ancient games, uh, you can imagine that it was a pretty bloody impressive place. You know, as I say, it was it was filled with temples and statues and whatever else. But uh, as as its wealth and prestige grew, so too did its its outward appearance. And um, around uh, four between four sixty six and four four fifty six uh, BCE, a temple was built, a particularly grand temple was built to Zeus, right, the the patron god of the uh, of Olympia there. And uh, after the the construction of this temple, right, the Eleans, the people who ran the joint, they decided that they wanted to spruce up the temple even further with a great big statue of Zeus himself. And so um, they they got they sort of you know they put uh, they put the wheels into motion to track down the the finest sculptors the finest statue maker the person who was going to be able to come and and, and really do a proper bang up job here and just three years earlier in 438 BCE the Athenians over in Athens they had just finished building the Parthenon the very famous temple of Athena that even today sits on top of the Acropolis there great big hill. Um, and in in the uh, Acropolis, they whacked a, a big statue of Athena in there. They began to you know decorate the whole temple, making it look all swish, you know, classic Athenians trying to outdo everyone. And so the Eleans in Olympus, right? They therefore decided that their temple of Zeus is going to eclipse even what the Athenians were up to. And so they commission a statue of the thunder god designed to surpass all others. And they hire the same bloke who had done the statue of Athena in, in, in the Parthenon, Athena Parthenos, right? This, bloke is named, this bloke's name is Phidias. So they're not mucking about. They want the best. They want the very best. And so Phidias, he travels over to Olympia and he sets himself up with a little workshop and then he gets underway uh, with, the, with, with obviously working on the statue that he's going to bung into this temple here. Now, the remains of Phidias's workshop, they still exist today. This is incredible. In ruins, obviously, but they were rediscovered in the 1950s. And archaeologists, they found tools and moulds and gemstones, bits of ivory, even a cup that actually had Phidias's name on it himself, which is just incredible. Um, anyway, Phidias, as I say, in this workshop, he gets underway on the statue, and what a statue it is. It's what's called a chryselephantine. Oh, geez. Okay, should have had a run up on that one. A chryselephantine? 
I really should have practiced this one before I recorded it. Chryselephantine sculpture. Okay, I'm just going to go with that one. It's made of ivory and gold. So Chryselephantine kind of makes sense. Anyway, um, so made of ivory and gold, further decorated with, you know, ebony, precious stones, all sorts of things. And it depicted Zeus sitting in a throne, olive leaf on his head, wearing a robe of glass that had been gilt with gold. So you can imagine, already spectacular. In its left hand, it held a, a scepter with an eagle, and in its right, it held a smaller statue itself, right? A smaller statue of Nike, the goddess of victory. And the whole thing was blown out with gems and all the rest of it, as I said. Even the throne, richly decorated, carved and gilt and everything. So this thing was a bloody sight to see. I can tell you, a lavish display of opulence with a ridiculous fortune, obviously well-deserving of its title as an ancient wonder. And Phidias, he put the whole thing together, right? This is how he built it. He built a, a sort of wooden sort of scaffold, I guess you'd call it, inside, for the, for the inside, like a skeleton, basically, which he then mounted ivory and gold panels onto. And then all around the statue, once the, once the statue was, uh, was completed, all around the statue on its base and everything, right, there were paintings and pictures showing all sorts of different things, battles and heroes and whatever. And very interestingly, in one of these pictures, Phidias apparently depicted his lover, a young bloke whose name was Pantarkes, who was an Olympic wrestler. So not bad. Get your face on a bloody wonder of the world just by rooting a sculptor there. Nice one, Pantarkes, the, the, the Olympic wrestler, eternalized. Well, not quite eternalized because obviously, you know, statue's not around today. But still, he, he did pretty well for himself. He obviously shacked up with the right bloke there. Anyway, statue itself, pretty bloody big too. Won't surprise you to learn. Very, very big thing. 12 and a half uh, metres tall, just under 12 and a half metres tall uh, while seated, which meant that if Zeus uh, would have stood up, he would have knocked the bloody roof off. He was that big. Uh, just to give you a sense of how big that actually is, the famous statue of Abraham Lincoln in the Lincoln Memorial in Washington, D.C., which is obviously also seated in a similar pose to Zeus, um, is just under six metres tall. So the statue of Zeus is twice as big as the statue of Lincoln, more than twice as big, in fact. And Lincoln's statue, for those of you who visited it, you'll know, it's not small. You can go and look at pictures of this statue and see it's bloody big. And just imagine a statue twice the size of that. So Zeus was large and in charge. Anyway, um, no replica of the statue has survived to the modern era. However, we still know more or less exactly how it looked and, and, and you know, how impressive it was and, and all that sort of thing. We, know, we, we have a good idea about it, of its appearance. Uh, thanks to the various accounts that were made of the statue, uh, you know, all, all the stuff that was written about it back then. And one of the most important accounts of it was written by a geographer whose name was Pausanias. Uh, who He visited the statue. He wrote a detailed description of it. He even recorded some of the folklore that surrounded the temple and the statue as well, just for good measure. So he was the one who told us about how richly decorated it was and, you know, what the what the throne looked like, the paintings, all the rest of it. But he also told us this little sort of legend or myth that, that surrounded it. Here's, here's, an, here's an, an excerpt of some of what he wrote about the statue. <clears throat> When the image was quite finished, Phidias prayed the god to show a sign whether the work was to his liking. And immediately, runs the legend, a thunderbolt fell on that part of the floor where down to the present day, the bronze jar stood to cover the place. And I mean, you know, probably not true. It probably didn't get hit by lightning as soon as Phidias asked Zeus to you know, send down a thunderbolt. But I quite like the fact that they hid it. They hid the fact like they hid the spot where the um where the lightning bolt had hit the floor. They hit it with, you know, like a, a little jar or something. Reminds me of the time that um, years ago uh, when, I, when I was a kid, um, we had an open fire and, a, and an ember cracked out, like a, a spat out of the fire and landed on the carpet and burnt a hole in it. And we were renting 
And so the landlord came around to inspect the place one time and mum had Oliver and I, my brother, playing with cars and she had us put a toy car over the top of this hole in the carpet so the landlord wouldn't see during the inspection. And I quite like the idea that this legend maybe arose because, you know, there's some like intern in there who was who was charged with like, I don't know, mopping the floor and managed to chip some of the some of the floors or damage it or something. And then when someone comes, what's that? What's that? Oh, Zeus, Thunderbolt hit the, wouldn't believe it. Thunderbolt right out of the sky came and knocked a hole in the, um, knocked a hole in the, we can't have people bloody walking in and seeing that. Put a bloody, put a bronze jar over the top of it. Make sure no one sees that. Anyway, I just thought that was, I thought, I don't know, I thought that was pretty funny. The, the fact that they, they hid a supposed divine miracle with a, with a, with a bronze jar. Anyway, of course, the statue it hasn't survived. Obviously, the statue has not survived. We all know that none of the wonders have survived today, except to the except the, the pyramid, of course, and the temple that uh, that held it also was lost to the ravages of history. Uh, and it was just as with the Temple of Artemis that we talked about last week. It was the rise of Christianity in the fourth century CE that was the undoing of the Temple of Zeus in Olympia, uh, because the Roman Emperor Theodosius the first he outlawed the by then pagan cults. Right, all of the people who worshipped these ancient gods were by that by this stage pagan. Um, ordered all the all these temples closed, and so the temple it was abandoned and it fell into disrepair. Now there are stories of the statue itself being removed and you know taken to Constantinople, but this is you know this is by no means certain and probably not true. The temple itself it was destroyed utterly in uh, in 475 by a fire, uh, 475 CE that is. Um, although it had probably been you know thoroughly plundered and looted by then, and, and you wouldn't imagine that something as valuable as, as a statue would have would have survived in one piece, given the fact that it's you know, ivory and gold and all the rest of people would be just hacking hacking bits off of it to take home to their uh, to their families there. So, but you know, look, still thanks to the, the thanks to the descriptions of various visitors over its eight hundred year lifespan, it did it did last quite a while. This wonder, um, and you know, the depictions of the statue on coins and the like, we've still got a pretty good idea of of what this magnificent statue looked like in its heyday. The next one to be built, of course, is the mausoleum at Halicarnassus, which, as I mentioned, we've covered in depth during episode 77. We'll do we'll do a quick recap here, but, uh, you know, that episode, it's definitely worth a listen if you want to get across it in greater detail. Um, construction began on the mausoleum in 353 BCE after the death of Mausolus, a satrap of the uh, Achaemenid Empire. And his wife, who also, interestingly, <laughs> happened to be his sister, uh, oversaw its construction. And after her death, she herself was also entombed there. Artemisia II, she was an incredible, absolutely incredible woman. Her story is amazing. Uh, we go across in episode 77, involved everything from naval warfare, military trickery and chicanery, uh, botany of all things, and then, you know, just a little little bit of incest chucked in there as well for good measure. Uh, anyway, the mausoleum itself, it was built in Halicarnassus, of course, uh, in modern-day Turkey. It was finished in 350 uh, BCE, and it was a huge, ornately decorated building. It stood 45 metres tall, covered in beautiful, intricate sculptures, and it lasted a long time. Uh, apart from the Great Pyramid, of course, it's the it's actually the wonder that stuck around the longest. Um, it did it did suffer damage from earthquakes and the like over the centuries, but it actually wasn't until uh, 1494 CE that it was finally destroyed once and for all, thanks to the Knights of St. John. Uh, they pillaged stones from what remained of the mausoleum at that point to fortify Bodrum Castle, which still stands today. You can go and see bits of the mausoleum in the walls of Bodrum Castle, uh, although the tomb itself, of course, had been plundered, plundered by tomb robbers 
you know, long, long before the Knights of Saint John had their way with the uh, with what the remains of it there. Anyway, all that's uh, all that's left of the mausoleum today are its ruined foundations, the the final remnant of this wonder that uh, this you know one of the world that, that before its destruction stood for almost two thousand years. Our next wonder is the Colossus of Rhodes, uh, which was an enormous statue of the Greek god Helios that could be found in, you'll be surprised to learn, surprisingly here, it was found in Rhodes. Um, Now, we've jumped forward roughly a century for each of the last couple of wonders. The temple was built in 550 BCE. Zeus was uh, put together in 435, the mausoleum in 353. So roughly a century between all of these. But it's a bit shorter for the Colossus, as construction began on it in 292 BCE and finished in 280. So it was huge, this thing. It was absolutely huge. Um, 33 metres tall, about as tall as the Statue of Liberty from her feet to the top of her crown. A little bit taller than Cristo Redentor in Rio. Uh, And, of course, it was, you know, at this point, the tallest statue ever built. You know, we look at statues like uh, the Statue of Liberty, Cristo Redentor, and they're largely speaking pretty small compared to a lot of other statues in the world. Um, uh, we're going to have a, t- a chat of about some of the other enormous statues uh, worldwide in a little bit, but uh, I mean, bloody hell! I tell you what, you know, I, if there's one person, if there's well, if there's if there's one identity figure you tend to see, uh, you know, immortalized in statue these days in great big bloody statues, it is Buddha. There are so many statues of Buddha that are absolutely gargantuan. And, and it's funny because the, the record for the world's largest, largest statue was overtaken. Uh, um, the, the record that the Colossus held was overtaken by a statue of Buddha in 694 CE in China. Anyway, we'll talk about all that a little bit later on. The Colossus itself, as I say, 33 metres tall, the biggest statue that the world had ever seen at this point, uh, and it was built as a victory monument by the Rhodians after they successfully weathered a year-long siege in 305 and 304 BCE. Now, Rhodes at this point in its history, it was a wealthy merchant republic, and it tried to keep itself out of the political and military, military affairs of the rest of the Greek world. However, in 305, it came under attack from a bloke whose name was Demetrius I. He was the king of Macedonia. He was the son of one of Alexander the Great's generals. Now, Demetrius, he was worried about Rhodes being too close with Ptolemy I of Egypt. Now, this is at a point that during the Ptolemaic rule of Egypt, Egypt is very closely aligned with Greek, with Greece and with the Greek world, right? Um Greek culture. And so Ptolemy, uh, who's quite cosy with Rhodes, right? Uh, this bloke, this bloke Demetrius is worried that Rhodes, that, that Rhodes is going to jump into bed with, with Ptolemy and, you know, and that'd be Macedonia uh, pushed, pushed out the game by, by this, you know, combined power here. And so um, Demetrius laid siege to the city of Rhodes to prevent them from aiding Ptolemy. Now, this didn't go down too well with the rest of the Greek world, can I tell you this? Uh, because a lot of them, a lot of, a lot of the Greeks, they, they saw it as an act of piracy. And this wasn't helped by the fact that Demetrius did, in fact, hire some actual literal pirates, some pirate fleets to help him win the siege. Uh, or help him try to, at least. Um, the Rhodians, uh, they were very well defended against the siege. They had a mightily fortified harbour. And due to their position and due to, the, I guess, you know, probably some of the sympathy that, that was engendered by them among, amongst many of the other Greek city-states there, they didn't have any trouble getting supply ships in and out. They were able to break the blockade um, that the Macedonians had, had, had you know, tried to s- surround the, the harbour with. And they managed to continue to bring in provisions, no worries. Demetrius tried a couple of other different taxi. 
He tried landing on other spots in the island and, and, and dragged siege equipment to the walls and attempted land-based assaults, but these were all repelled as, as well. So eventually, after a year, Demetrius, he abandoned the siege. Ptolemy actually ended up sending ships to break the Macedonian blockade. Um, and so Demetrius, he was sent packing with his tail between his legs, although which I think is quite funny. I read somewhere that he actually claimed a technical victory, which I quite like. Obviously, you know, you got, you got to send a message. You've got, you got to try to assert your dominance because technically he did stop the Rhodians from aiding Ptolemy after all. I mean, the fact that Ptolemy came and aided the Rhodians, that doesn't matter. The, the siege met its goal of preventing Rhodes from aiding Ptolemy. So anyway, the Rhodians, they, you know, they're pretty bloody pleased themselves. Pleased as punch they are. They've, um, they, they've gotten rid of this bloke, Demetrius. They've, they've saved their city from the, from, from the siege. And so they decide to make hay while the sun is shining because check this out, right? Demetrius had left behind all his siege equipment. He had left in a great hurry, and he hadn't he hadn't bothered dragging all of the stuff that he'd built there, uh, you know, off off to carting it back off in your ships and everything. He got, he got the hell out of Dodge as quick as he could. So all these siege engines, engines were left behind. So the Rhodians, they gather them together, they drag them together, and do you know what they do? They sell them. They bloody sell them. And for a nice little packet too, they earn a lot of money off of these, this sale, and they use the money from the from you know from getting rid of ridding themselves of these siege weapons. They use the money to build. You guessed it. A suitable victory monument, right, dedicated to their patron god, Helios, god of the sun. So they hire a bloke whose name is Karis, right? This bloke had, uh, had experience in building large statues before. Uh, he'd helped, he'd been, I think he'd been an apprentice to a bloke who'd built a, an another, a different, but another enormous statue of um, of, of Zeus in, uh, you know, in Tarentum. And uh, anyway, uh, Karis, um, he gets brought over. He gets brought over to Rhodes. He's a, he's a Rhodian local as well, so they're happy to have a local boy uh, working on it as well. Uh, but as I say, he's got experience building large statues. They turn the project over to his authority, and Karis, he gets underway in 292 BCE. Now, he built this statue out of iron and bronze, and much of this metal was actually taken from some of the some of the weapons that were left behind during the siege. Nice. So, you know, very, very appropriate, sort of like a, a, a you know, the, the, the iron throne type thing here, which I quite like. Um and even apparently they they used a siege tower, one of the leftover siege towers, as a scaffold, right? Uh, as well as just piling up massive uh, heaps of dirt and earth in order to, which is basically what I do in Minecraft whenever I'm building anything tall. I just use a big pile of dirt in, 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 while I'm, you know, trying to build stuff high in the air if I'm not in creative mode. So <laughs> it's good to see that the ancient traditions have been passed on all the way down to modern video games. Anyway. Building this, uh, building this thing, they used enormous iron bars that were that were put together as, as again as a sort of skeleton, to which these outer metal plates were then affixed, and and all of this right was on top of a great big marble plinth which was fifteen meters high. So the whole thing, thirty-three meter statue on top of a fifteen meter tall plinth, absolutely enormous, huge, 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 bloody enormous thing it was. However, we're not a hundred percent sure exactly where the Colossus was placed. Now, most accounts put it near the harbour, typically at its opening, and you, when you imagine it in your mind, you will probably, you will, it'll probably fall in, in line with the, the many depictions that have been made, made of it over the years, uh, with its legs spread across the harbour's entrance, a foot on either side. But this almost certainly was not how it was built, despite you know that being how most people imagine it today. It couldn't have been built like that for a number of reasons. Firstly, it wouldn't have been able to support its own weight. Based on what it was built on, it just would have collapsed under its own weight with its legs being spread apart that far. Uh, but secondly, it also would have meant that the harbour was closed, right? As they built it, they would have had to close off the harbour between its legs as they built it while it was being worked on, which is not an ideal situation to close the harbour, you know, for a naval-based merchant republic, hey? So probably didn't have its its legs spread over the front of the harbour. And, and we've got people like Shakespeare and other writers to thank for that misconception all throughout the Middle Ages people referred to the Colossus as having been built like that. But it is 
we're almost certain it is a misconception and it, and it wasn't constructed like that. But we're also not we're not one hundred percent sure of what its actual pose was. You know, it may have been built near the near the harbour front. It, it was you know obviously standing. But apart from that, we don't really know exactly what position it was in. You know, the popular popular conception again is that it was holding a torch aloft, kind of like the Statue of Liberty today. Um, but there's no evidence for that really. Um, there are images, there are reliefs and the like made of the Colossus from that era that showed that it, it, it's shading its eyes as though as as you might you know do when when you're looking towards the sun. Which is a bit weird for the sun god to have to shield his eyes while looking towards the sun, but you know, I guess this is this is before sunglasses, despite what the you know the album art for this podcast would have you believe. Also, completely unrelated. Here's a question: Why do cartoons, right, sometimes depict the sun wearing sunglasses? Like you know, you're seeing in like kids' cartoons, or whatever. I was picture of the sun. You'll see like drawings of the sun with it wearing sunglasses, like. Isn't it the only thing in the solar system for which sunglasses are really just utterly useless? I don't understand why the sun would ever wear sunglasses. Anyway, we're not really sure of the pose struck by the Statue of Helios, but we do know, great big tall thing, and it was wearing a spiky crown. Again, like, yep, yeah, you know, you know, you know, you know which statue I'm going to talk about, Statue of Liberty. Um, because uh, this featured prominently on Rodian, the crown featured, featured prominently, not the Statue of Liberty. That didn't feature on Rodian coins, obviously, but the... Uh, the, um, uh, the the Colossus did, and, and you know, its its head with the spiky crown was uh, was obviously uh, yeah they made a big deal of that. So um, we do know its size thirty three meters tall, as I said, a height that wasn't surpassed until the uh, the late seventh century CE. We do know roughly where it was, although there are some ideas that it may have been on a hill outside the city, but we probably it was probably outside of the harbour, wasn't straddling the harbour uh, entrance, and. We're not 100% sure of exactly the way that it was positioned. But it was, for a long time, the tallest statue that the world had ever seen, right? Again, as I say, until uh, until 694 CE, uh, CE uh, when, a, when a bigger statue of Buddha was built in China. But when you compare any of these statues to the statues today, mate, forget about it. The tallest statue in the world, right, it's found in India. It was built in 2018, and it's of Sardar Vallabhbhai Patel, who was a key figure in the unification of India in the mid-20th century CE. And this statue is, believe it or not, 182 metres tall. It is more or less as tall as the Space Needle in Seattle. Imagine that. Imagine a statue of a bloke that tall. And, I mean, after that, right, there are a lot of other statues that, I mean, there are, there are a bunch of statues that are above 100 metres, right? There are another five or six statues that are above 100 metres. And most of them are of Buddha. I will say this, a lot of Buddha statues, are like a lot, uh, all across India, uh, China, Thailand, places like that. And there are a lot of other, just other enormous statues of, of other different things. There's a very weird statue of Peter the Great in Moscow, which is 98 metres tall. Um, and it made it made the top 10 ugliest buildings in the world in 2008. Nice work there, Moscow. Uh, by the way, when I was looking all of this up, looking up like, you know, uh, there's, there's a very useful uh, Wikipedia page, the tallest statues uh, in the world. And you can go and see, again, most of them are of Buddha. Uh, but you can go and have a look at them. Some of them are absolutely amazing. All across Asia, they, they, they love their great big statues across most of Asia there. Um, yeah, but when looking all of this up, right, I came across a list of the tallest buildings by continent, which I want to share with you. Now, obviously, Asia with the, you know, 828-metre Burj Khalifa obviously, obviously crushes it. No one's coming close to that. But in last place... It's poor old Antarctica, of course. It's Antarctica with the long-duration balloon payload preparation buildings, which are just 15 metres tall. 
And that is 15 metres on Antarctica is tall enough to snag the top spot for the continent. The tallest buildings in Antarctica are 15 metres tall. So if you go there and just, I don't know, climb on top of a big ladder, you're on the tallest building, in inverted commas, on the continent easily. Poor old Antarctica. Anyway. The construction, right, we'll get back to the we'll get back to the Colossus Roads here. The, the construction of Colossus Roads, right, it meant that it was the tallest statue in the world for a long time, and this record obviously wouldn't be broken for centuries. But unfortunately, while its record lasted a long time, the statue itself, the Colossus itself, it did not. In 226 BCE, an earthquake caused the statue to snap at the knees and topple over. It keeled over, meaning that it stood for a total of just 50 Four years. Not very long at all when you consider, you know, the, the Great Pyramid is four and a half thousand years old. This one didn't last very long at all. And it was never rebuilt. It was never rebuilt either. An oracle ordained against its reconstruction. And so the Colossus, uh, it became the first wonder of the ancient world to actually be destroyed, to become undone. The statue itself, however, it actually remained where it had fallen. It fell over and was just kind of left there for a very long time, for you know hundreds of years. It was it was still a popular attraction. People would come and try to wrap their arms around its thumb. So big it was. They you know had a great time coming in and seeing you know a fallen one. Well, I guess it still counts, even though it had fallen over. And these broken remains uh, remained in place for eight centuries until the the seventh century CE when an Arab caliph, uh, whose name was Muawiyah I, uh, captured Rhodes and melted down the statue. Now, according to the chronicler Theophanes, Muawiyah then sold the metal from, from the Colossus. You know, it's just lying there. He gathered it up and he sold it wholesale to a Jewish merchant who apparently had to use 900 camels to carry it all off, to transport it all away. And that was the final end of the Colossus of Rhodes. Although, of course, in modern times, there has been talk of building a new Colossus at Rhodes. A few a few projects have emerged in the last, you know, sort of 10 to 15 years, but none have ever really gotten off the ground. And so for now, at least, the Harbour of Rhodes remains Colossusless. The last one we're going to talk about here is, of course, the Lighthouse of Alexandria, sometimes known as the Pharos of Alexandria. Uh, it was built only very shortly after the Colossus, uh, sometimes sometime between 284 and 246 BCE. So it's actually possible that the Colossus and the Lighthouse were under construction at the same time, which is pretty cool. Now, we don't have a lot of details about the exact dates of its, its construction, unfortunately. Uh, we only we know that it was built during the reign of Ptolemy II, uh, the son of Ptolemy I, the bloke who had sent ships to help out Rhodes. Um, and so that gives us that date range of, of 284 to 246, but we don't know exactly when it was uh, when it was constructed. Now, it was obviously rather, you know, rather obviously it was built in Alexandria on the Nile Delta, which is in modern-day Egypt, uh, a city that was founded, of course, by none other, than, none other than Alexander the Great, who established it on an isthmus near uh, a different town near Pharos. And eventually the two, uh, the, two, the two cities became connected by a huge mole, um, not the digging animal, a great big breakwater that turned the water between the two cities into a harbour. Um, and today, obviously, this area is unrecognisable, of course. Alexandria is developed on top of this ancient topography. But back then, outside this new harbour, Ptolemy I, the dad, he decided to build an enormous lighthouse uh, to, to guide ships into port. Now, 
I don't know if this is true or not, but the people of Pharos, they apparently had a bad reputation for being wreckers, uh, people who took advantage of ships that had wrecked themselves upon the shore by, you know, pillaging and plundering the, the cargo or whatever else. Again, look, this might just be myth. Um, it may not have actually been the case. Maybe Pharos has sort of been tarred with the wrong brush here. But uh, nonetheless, uh, Ptolemy, whatever the case was, Ptolemy had this lighthouse built in order to get ships safely to shore, safely into the into the Alexandria Harbour there. Now, you know, despite Ptolemy I being the one to commission it, it wasn't finished until the reign of his son Ptolemy II, but once completed, what an incredible building it was. It was over 100, it was over 100, 100 metres tall, potentially as, even, as high as even 118 metres, right? enormous. Remember that the Great Pyramid, the tallest structure on Earth, is 146 metres tall at this stage. So the lighthouse is right up there. It's one of the tallest buildings on the face of the planet. Uh, it was built of, of limestone and pink granite. It had a tall square base that tightened into a smaller octagonal tower in the middle and then another smaller cylindrical tower on top of that. So it tapered uh, towards the top with each section a little smaller than the last until you reached its pinnacle. And there at the top, you would find a huge mirror now, during the day, this could be used to reflect sunlight, but obviously the most important thing was at night when a furnace would be lit and uh, this mirror would be used to amplify the light and uh, and direct it out towards the sea in order to, you know, again, help, uh, help ships uh, come into port safely. Now, the interesting thing about lighthouses here is that they're actually relatively new technology. Now, you know, obviously... People had been lighting fires on coastal hilltops to warn ships off the shore for time immemorial. And there was some evidence that, that lighthouses actually, you know, existed back in the 5th century BCE, although they were little more than just like large columns with fire on the top. Actual towers were pretty scarce. So the Lighthouse of Alexandria was a very important development in the history of seafaring as uh, you know as the construction of such a a mighty building just to keep ships safe was a big step forward in uh, in in naval safety and it, and it really set the standard for what a lighthouse could do what it looked like how how grand and enormous these buildings could be and unlike many of the other wonders interestingly too this one was a little more resilient it stuck around for a long long time uh, interestingly even after earthquakes damaged it it was repaired and it remained in good working order for over a thousand years so as a result, we've got a very good idea of what it looked like and how it functioned. Uh, even if we don't know exactly when it was built, we do know a lot more about it than we do the other wonders because it just survived for such a, a long period of time. And we ended up with quite accurate descriptions of it that survived from Arab scholars and writers once Egypt was conquered by Islamic forces. And uh, one such description, one of the most complete ones, uh, comes from an Arab traveler whose name was, uh, here we go, Abu Hagag Yusuf Ibn Muhammad El Balawi El Andalusi. I mean, I don't know how he got all that in his passport, bloody hell. But all the same, he wrote a very detailed description uh, of the lighthouse, including uh, the measurements of its size. Now, this lighthouse, I mean, due to its size, it was a marvel just for that alone, right? It was so much taller than almost everything, anything else that had ever been built, except, of course, the Great Pyramid a little way up river. But then again, that was a pyramid. This is a tower. So it really is a, it's something to behold. I mean, today we take tall buildings for granted, right? They dominate the skyline of many major cities around the world. But 2,000 years ago, a building like the Lighthouse of Alexandria, something that was so narrow and so tall, it would have been unimaginably impressive for the people who were, who were lucky enough to see it at this point in history. And it stood the test of time, better than most of the other wonders. It'd be, it was outlived only by the Great Pyramid, of course, and the mausoleum lasted a little longer than it as well. 
And as I say, earthquakes hit the lighthouse several times, but it was repaired. You know, it was repaired. One repair in uh, in 956 CE saw an Islamic-style dome put on top of it, so it did last a long time. However, at the beginning of the 14th century uh, CE, in 1303, a massive earthquake, a huge big earthquake, it finally put the lighthouse out of commission once and for all. It was never repaired after this earthquake in, in 1303. Um, and then in what is becoming a bit of a common thread amongst the stories of these wonders, the stones used to build the lighthouse were pillaged to build a fortress. <laughs> so the lighthouse, after its dis- ultimate destruction by the li- uh, by this um, earthquake and then, you know, uh, having its stones uh, ripped away and, and, and used in a, in a construction project, it was lost to history, lost to history for a while there, uh, all the way through to the late 1960s when some of its remains were rediscovered, so very recently indeed. And in the 1990s, even more recently, these remains that you know laying on the bottom of the Mediterranean Sea, they were further investigated. They found statues and sphinxes and columns and carvings, and they dragged a lot of this up. It's now on display in Alexandria's museums. And today, you can go scuba diving and go and see the remaining ruins for yourself, right, underwater. And UNESCO is currently working to put the site on the World Heritage List of Submerged Sites. But interestingly, there was another lasting influence of the lighthouse at Alexandria, even centuries after its final destruction. Check this out. Because it had a very strong influence on language. And in particular, the word word for lighthouse in many different languages. Now, obviously in English, you know, the word lighthouse, very self-explanatory, although I suppose it really should be light tower. Because, you know, it's no good bloody bunging a torch on your roof, is there? That's not going to do much good. Anyway, in other languages, right, the word for lighthouse actually comes from where it was built. Not Alexandria, but Pharos. Pharos became Greek for lighthouse. And this then found its way into Romance languages like French and Spanish and Portuguese and many others on top of that. And and, And even more interestingly, the word for headlight, like a headlight of a car, in Russian, Serbian, and Turkish, it's also related to Pharos. So this ancient settlement and its wonder of the world ended up ended up naming car parts in certain languages. And very it certainly very much made its mark on history. So those are the seven wonders of the ancient world, and those are their stories. It was very interesting to learn about them. You know, I hope that you enjoyed finding out a bit more about something that we're all at least vaguely familiar with. I mean, there was a brief period. This is the part I found really fascinating. There was a brief period when the six actual real wonders out of the seven, they all stood at the same time. They all existed, you know, at the same point in history between the between the construction of the lighthouse sometime between 284 and 246 BCE and the destruction of the Colossus of Rhodes in 226 for a few decades, just a few decades. This list was a real, actual, extant thing, and you could go and see every single one of them if you were kicking about in the mid-3rd century BCE, obviously, except for the Hanging Gardens. I mean, you know... Good bloody luck finding them. You're not going to be able to see them, mate. Good bloody luck finding them. That's all I'll say to you. One thing, one thing, one last thing I want to come back to very briefly before we wrap up the episode here is what we talked about last week, the tendency that we have to compress history the further back that we go in time. Now, if you listen to last week's episode, you'll know that I, I talked a little bit about that here. And, you know, 
I don't think you can blame anyone for lumping all of these wonders that were built across many centuries, many you know millennia in some cases. I don't think you can blame people for lumping them all into the same block of history despite the years that separate them. But just, just as a little exercise here, I, I want to put them into a more modern context and, and just sort of, you know, think about how we may view them today if, if they were, you know, if we, or perhaps if we were back then, right, as we, as we sort of explore the, the, the relativity between these the, the years that they were built here. So let's put it in a more modern context. Let's imagine that the lighthouse, the last wonder to have been constructed, had just been finished now, right, just right now in August of 2020, 2020 CE, you know, rather than. 246 BC, which was the latest possible date of its construction. So if the lighthouse had been built in 2020, that would mean that the Colossus of Rhodes, right, would have been completed in 1974, the same year that Nixon resigned in the wake of the Watergate scandal. Now, already we don't count that as the same chunk of history as today, right? That's Cold War history. That's old history already. But it's not that long ago, and it's enough for some people to even remember, you know, that it, this was in, within the lifetime of, of many people listening to this podcast, I'm sure. So let's go back a little further now, back to the mausoleum, which would have been finished around the start of the First World War in the 1910s, over a century ago now. We're definitely in a different historical era now. People, they'd be visiting it in suits and hats and floor-length dresses. Uh, they'd be listening to reports about it on, on brand new exciting technology, the radio. And if we go back further to the Statue of Zeus, which, again, if the lighthouse had been built in, in 2020, the Statue of Zeus would have been built the same year that Charles Darwin set off on the Beagle in 1831. And this would be too early, if you'd found out this exciting news, it'd be too early to send your mate a telegram about it. Telegrams wouldn't be invented for another six years. The Temple of Artemis would have been built in 1716, the same year that Edward Teach, Blackbeard, became a pirate. Surprise naval history for you. Come out of nowhere here. So I bet you're seeing now how the gaps between these wonders would very clearly put them in different historical periods these days. We wouldn't put Darwin and Blackbeard in the same historical window, but still we fall into the trap of lumping these ancient wonders together. The Hanging Gardens of Babylon would have been not built in, in, in 1666, the same year as the Great Fire of London. And, you know, had it not been built then, we'd probably be a lot less unsure about it never having not been fictional. And finally, if the Lighthouse of Alexandria had been built in 2020 CE, the Great Pyramid of Giza would have been built around 300 BCE. It is that old. It is that bloody old that even shifting its history forward by thousands of years still leaves it in the same perceived epoch as it is today. Ancient history. But still, we tend to put all of the stuff that happened ages ago into just one basket, this, this ages ago basket. Look, look, it's, it's not... It's, it's not reasonable to expect people to be, you know, as granular with ancient history as we are with modern history. And, and that's not what I'm trying to say here. I'm not trying to well actually people or anything. I just I just want people to think about this, right? There's there's actual, you know, there's scientific evidence that has been done on this sort of thing. Our brains are wired to process some stuff, uh, you know, certain things logarithmically, which distorts our perception of this sort of thing. You can read about this by Googling the uh, the Weber-Fechner law. It's, it's, it's really interesting, but again, this, you know, this isn't half-assed psychophysics, so I'll leave you to read about that. But 
by talking about this and by highlighting the time difference between all of these uh, these wonders and talking about how different it would be if that happened more recently compared to you know thousands of years ago i'm just trying to make history a little more a little bit more relatable to us when we look at an old building like the Eiffel Tower built 130 years ago we think you know it's, it's built it was built a long time ago 1889 a long time ago we look at it and we say yes that's old but that's what it was like for people who built the statue of zeus when they looked at the temple of artemis we think of the seven wonders as, as, as being old, really old. But here's the thing. More or less every single other person in history who has thought about or wrote about or even visited these seven wonders when they were still standing, you know, we may think they're old now, but all of these people throughout history, they all also thought exactly the same thing. But that's it. That's all she wrote today, sports fans. That is at long last the end of the stories of the seven wonders. I mean, for those of you who went back and listened to episode 77, I did promise you that I would do the other six. And here here I am, eight months later, delivering on the promise. So you're welcome. I hope you enjoyed it. It was nice to do a bit of ancient history. And uh, I'd like to get across more. And of course, if you've got any ideas for some ancient history, I should get across. Especially, you know, a lot of it comes, classical antiquity comes from the from the Greek world, the Roman world. If you've got something from a little farther afield, I'd love to hear it uh, so we can maybe widen the aperture a little bit on ancient history. It'd be good to hear from you if you've got any suggestions there. So do get in touch. Halfhousehistory.net is the website. You'll find a contact form there. Links to episodes you can subscribe through the website as well there. there's a link to itunes spotify whatever else and of course the half house history shop if you want to uh, buy a t-shirt uh, limited supplies not you know they're not scarce but they're limited don't have infinite t-shirts i mean it's a bad enough storing the number that i do imagine about infinite t-shirts would have a big problem in our hands uh, so if you want to buy one of them you, you certainly can free shipping worldwide uh, special offer not special offer it's been like that since the beginning it's not a special offer at all i'm trying to i'm trying to use all the marketing buzzwords but i'm, I'm no good at that everyone knows that anyway Speaking of marketing, go and like support the show on Patreon if you want to. You don't have to. You can just listen to it for free if you want, but like you can give me money. You don't I mean, you get stuff for it. You can listen to the unedited episodes. I I burped a fair bit during this one, so if you if you're into that, that's you know, that's something you can you can pay money to hear <laughs> if you want that premium burp content. Anyway, uh, but thank you to all the people who are supporting me on Patreon and thank you to the people just listening to this regardless of, you know, whether you, you give me money or not. I appreciate you, you, you finding time, carving out time each week to, uh, to listen to this dumb podcast. So thank you very much. Anyway, that is that for this week. I'll be back next week with another episode. Uh, unsure we'll do it on, but I'm sure it's going to be a ripper anyway. So I'm looking forward to your company then. Until then, of course, leaving you a question posed on Reddit. We've talked about all sorts of wonders today and we finished the story with the Lighthouse of Pharos. So very appropriate here that we answer this question or we ask this question at, l- at least from Reddit historian Seven Purple Chickens who asks, <clears throat> how much does a lighthouse really weigh?